Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this time that we had to study uh, your prayer that you've given to us, teaching us how to pray and teaching us how to lean into you and have our thoughts conformed and transformed into your thoughts. And specifically as we think about what it means to hallow your name, to make your name holy in our lives, in our worship, and how to pray your kingdom come. We pray that you would guide us into your truth by your spirit and allow us to learn these deep things about your about uh, the relationship and this uh, journey and story that you've caused us to be a part of. And it's your son's name we ask these things. Amen. <clears throat> so this week we'll be talking about two, two points, uh, what it means to say hallowed be your name and your kingdom come. Um, so hallowed be your name. Um, it may be odd just to think about it, but God has a name. I think that's one of the things that this is really pronouncing for us. And uh, modern people sometimes are tempted to think that you know God is just this concept to which Christians have attached this label, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, we imagine God to be the sum and highest, best aspirations of what it means to be human. And or just this primitive way of thinking about morality or just this expression of the experience that we have when we are alone in our with our thoughts. But when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're saying something really different. We're saying that God is personal and that God lives and acts and has a name. If you think back with me all the way back to the Hebrew Exodus out of Egyptian slavery, God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And Moses asks him, Who are you? Who am I supposed to say sent me when I return to the Israelites? Um, Moses realizes that he's not in the presence of a concept. He's not some amorphous blob of a spirit. No, he's face to face with this peculiar God who is peculiar in all the things that he's doing and saying. This God hears the cry of an oppressed people, and he has not only heard them, but he's moving to act. He's entering into the world, and he's bigger than the kings like Pharaoh, who was the world power at the time. But this God is strange because he chooses to act through someone so inept like Moses to disrupt the world and disrupt world politics. And change that forever. So Moses asks him, like, what are you? Who are you? Are you a concept like liberation? Or freedom? Or self-esteem? Or just self-actualization? As we might think of it in our day. Uh, But God answers with his name. And it really is this kind of bizarre thing. He says, I am who I am. I will be present to who I will be present. Um, this God creates his own identity and he won't let us be used and jerked around by every human whim or cry. This God is, is his, he's a free, untamed, sovereign God, but he's also compassionate. But then in here we see that he's also holy. 
And upon hearing God's name, that is actually when Moses hid his face and he was afraid to look at God. And who wouldn't? We really discover that God's ways are not our ways. And we see that He is so different from us. When we're confronted with that, it undoes us. It, it makes us fall on our face and feel the very power that He has, that He has as different, that He can't be used by us, and He's not safe. He can't be safely sealed in heaven, but God is busily coming into our world and disrupting everything here on earth, and He is to be feared. We are unable, like Moses, to be before a holy God, and yet, strangely enough, God allows us to speak His name, to call God's name in prayer. Uh, For God has graciously told us His name. And because this God reigns in heaven and on earth, God's name is to be hallowed or or holy since it is the only name that every creature on earth bows. Whether it's the insect that you see walking on the street, crawling about there that you want to capture, or the firefly, or the whale, every single human being, women and men and children, all of us, are made to adore and worship this one God. And what we're seeing here is that to not know the name of God, to not know how God's name is to be hallowed among us, how not to, in some sense, worship Him and adore Him as we should, that is what it's, it's fundamentally to mean to be at conflict with our true selves. We're made, we're created for no better purpose than to praise that's why we say, that's why we're putting the Lord's Prayer under this understanding of doxology, of praise. Because it's teaching us, this prayer is teaching us primarily how to do that in our thoughts, in our worship, in our lives. Um, we are created for no better purpose than to praise God. As Augustine said, one of the early church fathers, he said, because you made us for yourself, our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. Um, but we only have to just go out a little bit in our week and look at the headlines or on TV or just bump into people to realize we don't know how to rightly praise God. Um, the morning headlines, we see our disconnectedness and how, how our lives are full of disarray, whether it's through killing and stealing or just nastiness and mayhem. We see that our relationships, everything that we're a part of in this life, sin's effects have creeped in and we don't have balance. We don't actually know who we are. And all these things are sin's effects because we don't know how to hallow God's name as we should. Um, We are anxiously attempting to secure ourselves frantically seeking to give substance to our lives, even violently, because we're worshiping the wrong things. And we're failing to acknowledge God and God's willingness to become our Father. And so sin in our lives 
is primarily not hallowing His name. We're not singing in tune. We're not praising Him as we should. And the result is that we're dehumanized by our sin. Our sin makes us stupid. Our sin dehumanizes us and those around us because we're failing to live to our calling in hallowing God's name. And so all creation is meant to hallow God's name. And we learn, we have to learn and be taught what it means to adore Him correctly, to rightly praise Him. Um, This praise, this hallowing is really, it constitutes who we truly are. Um, That none of us live lives unto ourselves. None of us are just a man or only a woman or merely an accountant or a cook or a teacher. In praying our Father, we're saying that God has commandeered us. He has changed us and brought us out of our own stories of a nowhere man going nowhere, having no purpose. And we can watch as we pray this how our our fate and our lives are being transformed by God's good destiny. We're counting for something in the larger scheme of things and we are being caught up as, as we've talked about in this larger adventure that is so much better than our private, personal stories. We're being caught up together with all of creation in praising a holy God who stoops down to us who enjoys our praise, who delights in hearing us praise Him, even to hear our songs. And so praying this prayer teaches us to do that. It gets us into that rhythm and that habit of putting this in the front of our minds. This is why we we are called to pray this prayer. Not just something like this, but the, the passage literally says to pray like this. God wants us to have this constantly at the forefront of our mind that this is what we were made to do. And in discovering that, we we discover what it means to be truly human. Um, So in praying, hallowed be your name, we're seeing that God has not only called us to hallow His name, but that He's also commandeered us. He's sanctified us and set apart us and or made us to be holy. And we are learning to live our lives in such a way that we make visible to the whole world the holy God that reigns. That God has rightfully claimed all of creation and He's starting to regain all of enemy territory. He's regaining this territory in us to start once again being what it means to be human. Um, If we just look through the Psalms, we will know how often the psalmist is calling Israel and the church to praise. It's as if the whole point of the congregation is as we come together for this very purpose. Now, praise may not suit our natural tendencies It may not be easy for us. And that's why God in His Word is so often inviting us to praise His name. Uh, We read in Psalm 150, it says, Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in the mighty firmament. 
Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His surpassing greatness. Praise Him with a trumpet sound. Praise Him with a flute and harp. Praise Him with a tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with clanging cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals that everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. That is the culmination. Everything that we're doing as humans in many ways is coming to church and doing that as a congregation so that it can echo out into the rest of our lives during the week. And that's why saying, hallowed be your name, in many ways is so closely related to your kingdom come. The fitting response of the holiness of God is then learning how to honor God's name in all that we say and do. And our worship, our worship is intimately connected to our ethics, to how we live life in the light of the holiness of God. It may sound odd, but Christian worship isn't just glorifying God, but it's also how we are sanctified. Um, as we glorify God in our worship, in our praise, in our prayer, we are in turn sanctified by that and made holy in everyday life. Um, Paul specifically says to Timothy that everything is made holy by prayer and thanksgiving. And he's primarily talking about public worship. Um, sanctification is just a church word that means to be made holy. As we praise God, we are becoming formed into God's image. Uh, and in many ways, we become what we worship. And worship, as we're saying, it just means to adore something. It's to give its rightful place. So whatever we're worshiping in this life, we become like that. Augustine also said that we imitate what or whom we adore. In many ways, we, we wrongly think that we're these spontaneous creatures who are just out there expressing ourselves. But in actuality, we're really creatures of habit. We're creatures of habit who are doing things over and over and over again because those are the things that are forming and shaping us and teaching us how to worship God. Um, we've used this example before, but if you think about what happens in worship, if we're constantly thinking about doing all these new things all the time, we're much more concentrated on, on the mechanics of what we're doing. We're not actually worshiping God when we're doing new things all the time. It's actually when we have that favorite song and when we're doing that same thing over and over again, when we're praying this prayer over and over again, that we can learn to lose ourselves and just think about God. And we lose ourselves to those things. We're creatures of habit and we need those things over and over again to actually learn how to worship. Um, and the Lord's Prayer is teaching us that over and over again over time. How to do those things. And that's slowly, we're slowly over time learning to be perfect in that sense as our Father in Heaven is perfect. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, when He makes that 
claim, he's just not talking about being morally perfect. He's also using that as the end or the sense of goal or completion of being mature. As we adore our holy God in worship, we are becoming holy and maturing ourselves. As we pray the Lord's Prayer and we learn to pray rightly, we are learning to resemble the one to whom we pray. And a lot of this perfection, this maturing, is, as Jesus says, learning to love our enemies. As we'll go on and show in, in later in the Lord's Prayer, when it says to forgive those who trespass against us, a lot of that is learning through our prayer to love our enemies. Jesus said that you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. It's interesting here that Jesus assumes that that as disciples we will have enemies. He assumes that. Being a Christian involves this no presumption on our part that the world is this nice place that if we're just really nice, good people, we can get along by going along. And we can just kind of go with the flow. Um, no, being a Christian actually means that you'll have enemies that you would not normally have if you weren't a Christian. Becoming a Christian actually makes you at enmity with the world. And what makes those enemies is us being a part of this community that actually lives a life of forgiveness. Paul tells us that actually forgiving our enemies is heaping coals of fire on their head. The world lives by violence and enmity. Our community of faith lives by forgiveness. And that actually is what creates a lot of our enmity with this world. Our world can't stand the forgiveness that God is working into this world. And so being a Christian is primarily learning through prayers like this of what I want to call having an absolving presence in the world. Because we've been absolved, we've been forgiven like we are in worship, we actually are being changed into being forgivers. Because we are forgiven, we actually can go out and forgive those around us. In praying prayers like this, God is crashing into this world and doing things, as we said, that don't seem like we sh- that God should be doing. He's going around and using inept people like Moses, sinners like us. He's forgiving them, and then He's making them people who forgive. And that's really what is going on in worship as we are being made holy. It's not just about being morally perfect. It's actually being us being transformed into being like our Father in heaven who pray for our enemies, who persecute us. That's what it is about. As we're praying this prayer, as we're going through worship, is that we may be like our we might like we be our like our Father in heaven. We are learning how to be a forgiving, reconciling people. That's kind of bizarre 
We don't think about it like that, but that's actually what it means to hallow God's name. To be like our Father in heaven is learning to be reconciling, is learning to do what Jesus did as he makes this crater by his mere presence in the world. If we live life about us, if life is about our story, if life is about our small narratives, then we're not going to be able to forgive anyone because we have to hold on to those things with a death grip if that's what life is about. But because we've been put into this greater story that isn't about us, that's something so magnificent and marvelous, we can let go of our petty narratives that make forgiving others so hard. God, the King of the universe, has forgiven us of cosmic treason. And therefore, we've been brought into this story of reconciliation and we can forgive even our worst enemies. And being a Christian, as I said, is learning to have that absolving presence in the world. We can know we are Christians and we're a part of that story by having that absolution in our hearts that we can freely give to others. Perhaps we come into the, this Christian world thinking that it's a matter of just trying to do the right thing and to living a good life. But that is in many ways putting the cart before the horse. Christianity is not a matter of what we do and how we live but it's a first of a matter of what God has done for us in Christ. And we have no idea how to live until we first know God's name. We know who God is. And so when we say that God's name is holy, then that tells us how we ought to live. Now, per- perhaps as we think about these things, especially in our Christian subculture, When we think about the Christian life, we may instantly go to some ethical dilemma and want to start there. It's very easy to want to start with the practical things. It's very easy to want to start with how do we live. It's very easy to go to things like abortion or capital punishment or Christian view on this subject or that subject or a Christian response to this or that problem. Um, But we have to begin not just with the moral and ethical dilemmas. Before we even get there, we have to begin with prayer. We have no right as Christians to talk about abortion if we don't first start with prayer. We have no right to actually have a Christian position on anything if we don't begin with hallowing God's name first and then learning how to pray this prayer. Um, because when we do this, we're actually learning how to start in the right direction, having our lives and our hearts and minds and ethics bent in the right direction before we can even get to that discussion. Um, Then we will know how to live and talk about those things. Then we will know how to live in this world as God's people praying for his kingdom to come. And so that's why our, our ethics, our way of living, we, we begin 
our day of the week by going to worship on Sunday. That's why it's the first day of the week for Christians. We begin with worship where our moral lives, our hearts are being changed to sing God's praise. And our ethics is a byproduct of our worship. The Apostle Peter says he first puts this in this way. We are first made holy and then we live in light of his marvelous grace. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. And then he says, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do we see the connection there? That he says we've been chosen, ordained, adopted, made holy. That's a worship term. That's a liturgical worship idea. In order that we then can go proclaim God's mighty acts in word and deed. Again, after telling us that we have not, that once we had not received mercy, Peter says, but now you have received mercy, he immediately demands, beloved, I urge you as aliens and as exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul, and then to conduct yourselves honorably. Yes? Question? Yes, Peter, in that exact phrase, he says, like, we have come to the word that has washed us and made us cleansed and holy, which is the seed that's implanted to save us. He's, his whole thing, the whole epistle is written to the church, and they're all inherently a churchly thing. So it, when Peter is writing this, he wants this to be written in a church service, read in a church service. There's nothing, there's no epistle that isn't out of a church act, if that makes sense. All these things, they're never just meant to be read on our own in our own private worship you know, on, on Monday. We, we, can, we do do that, but it's primarily he's thinking of in worship when he's talking about being washed, being made holy. He's doing this in the church. It's doing it on Sunday where God is doing this as we hear the word washed over us. We're being set apart and made holy. We're being sanctified and then the light of that goes out into our week through the worship. That's why when, when the early church said in Acts 2.42 that we gathered for prayer and thanksgiving and the apostles' teaching, there's the article that is, met, is left, left out of the English translation when it says prayers. It actually says the prayers. When, when they came together, all of these things were what constituted Christian worship, the Lord's Prayer included. And yes, it's specifically through these things that we are sanctified primarily. It's through what the what the reformers said the keys of the kingdom were, through word, the preaching of the word, the sacraments and prayer, that the kingdom of heaven is opened up to us that we are sanctified and set apart and made holy, and then we, get from that, go out and can live lives that God has called us. And it echoes out. And so that, that is what the early church meant by the Lord's Day, that this is specifically a unique thing that's happening on Sunday, unlike anything else that happens. 
It's not that God isn't with us during the week. It's not that God isn't present and His grace isn't there. But God is uniquely present in baptism, in the Lord's Supper, in the preaching of the Word, the hearing of the Word as we sing together in worship, from which we then launch our lives. So you can see this actually in the theology of the Sabbath throughout the whole Old Testament. They were working to enter into God's kingdom, into the Sabbath and the holy rest of God. Jesus has accomplished that. He enters into that. He sits down at the right hand of God. And that's why Sunday begins our week. We begin resting. We begin from that Sabbath rest from which we live. We don't have work from six days and then one we rest. We begin resting in God's kingdom because Christ has accomplished everything. He gives us those benefits, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, giving the Spirit, giving apostles, prophets, and teachers by which the whole church is built up. And then we live our lives out of that, out of gratitude and thanksgiving. Does that make sense? So it's a very different, it's a different flow that you see throughout the whole New Testament um, where we're given this ecstatic vision of heaven as John was, where he's, he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day in the book of Revelation. And the author of the Hebrews says, we have come not to Mount, Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion, to the mountain of the holy living God. And we are ascending into heaven on the Lord's Day and receiving his good gifts and then going out throughout the rest of the week giving our neighbor the things that they need because God has so blessed us. Um, yeah, so that's, that's what is happening here is that as we are shaped in corporate worship, then we can go live our lives in private worship in, in our daily vocations and callings as holy people of God. Um, and so hallowing God's name begins with that worship, but then it goes out into our lives and is very much related to what the, one of the Ten Commandments says about taking God's name in vain. Um, hallowing God's name is obviously the opposite of taking God's name in vain. And though it may be kind of the blasphemy of of swear words or cursing um, that may not be the greatest blasphemy against God's name that we can see. We look at oftentimes in the, in the, in Western history, there were a lot of empires that would go around attaching God's name to their war and to their cause. And so you would have various sides thinking that God was on their side and even going to bless them. Even up to World War II, the German soldiers went into battle with the words, God with us, emblazoned on their helmets. Nazi Germany did that. And they thought that God was on their side. And that's actually probably the greater blasphemy against the holy name of God. To invoke the name of the free God as a patron to our political warfare and our causes is actually to take God's name in vain. <laughs> um, when, we, when we are being formed and shaped by this prayer, 
We're saying your kingdom come. And to try to attach him to our kingdoms and our political agendas to attempt to put a leash on God and drag him into our crusades and our cruelty is blasphemy. Uh, And the holy God will not be jerked around in that way. Um, We can't use God as a rubber stamp for our causes like the Pharaoh of Egypt did with all their gods. God is not going to be allowed to be used that way. He is a God of the oppressed, of the humble, of the weak, of the widow and the orphan. And to do things, to think like that we can, in some sense, attach and put him on a leash to that small cause is to miss entirely what Jesus is doing and coming and doing. And in some sense, that's kind of good news for us. Um, And it's, after all, a matter of honor that God alone is to be honored, and it's a good news that we can that He alone is worthy of those things, because it this protects us from tempting the temptation that's that we often have to, in some sense, give honor to all these other worldly desires. It frees us from turning these small things into God. God is protecting us from the idolatry that we're so prone to by saying that He alone is worthy of this honor. Um, We also have this worldly desire for honor that tempts us to kill in God's name in order to secure honor for ourselves. That's so often the temptation of Christians in the church is to use violence to advance God's kingdom and to say God's stamp is on it because we have the truth and we're going to use violent means to do that. That is blasphemy, is to use violent means to advance God's kingdom. Um, And God is protecting us from that with this prayer. God is protecting us from that very way of doing things. And in praying this prayer, we discover, to kind of wrap up this point, that we kind of dragged on a little bit, but that's okay. Um, in praying this prayer, naming God's holiness, as we said, we're discovering not just who God is, but who we are. And we're being daily reminded that we belong not to ourselves or our desires or our small kingdoms or our small stories, but to God. And being formed and shaped by that, we are learning that each one of us has been named by God. We've been commandeered into His story. We've been elected and chosen and ordained as priests and prophets and kings in this world that we are owned, that we are not our own, but are, but are in body and in soul belonging to our faithful Savior Jesus Christ. And we are learning that we live as we pray. We become what we worship and adore and whatever we make holy in our lives. Any thoughts or questions before we move to the next point? And hopefully get to that, the rest of that. Any thoughts or questions? So your kingdom come.
Um, in this prayer, I think we become so used to saying these kind of things that we forget that the idea of a kingdom is political. Like that that is a really political word. And because we don't have kingdoms, we don't have kings in our democracy, the power of this word is totally lost on us. How, how utterly striking it would have been to the ancient Jews and into the Gentile world in Rome would have been totally like a bombshell. Here, in some sense, politics has crept into our Christian praying at this point. Um, here we're talking about God, heaven, holiness, and then suddenly we're finding ourselves in the middle of this political argument about the kingdom of God. And we're being transferred into some new place that calls into question all our old allegiances. We're not praying, Lord, bless our nation. We're not saying, Lord, protect our family. We're saying, your kingdom come. And here, the Lord's Prayer makes a move towards the very specific and and ordinary things in life. We shortly move from praying about a kingdom to then talking about, as we'll see, to the earth. And then to bread. And then our normal relationships day to day. And I think it's very strange in our day when everyone is very caught up with being spiritual but not religious to see that Christianity is very materialistic. Not in the bad sense that we're caught up with those things, but our religion is about embodiedness. Our physicality, our being human, is not wrong. Our goal is not to fill you up with enough spiritual hot air that you float above the earth like some Buddhist monk. Um, our goal is to teach you to, teach you to pray in such a way that every material matter on earth, everything that you go through, whether it's politics or bread, you will see as deeply spiritual. Jesus did not come urging us to think about him or to feel deeply about him in a disembodied way as these spirit beings. You know, as Yoda said, that we're not these crude beings of flesh and matter. We are beings of light. No, that, that is the Buddhist Eastern mindset that is nothing to do with what Christianity is about. Um, Jesus came inviting us to join up with his kingdom. And the very means that the Bible says he does that, he shows his kingdoms on earth, is that he went around healing people of their physical maladies. If our bodies didn't matter, he wouldn't have done that. He would have been like, oh, yeah, your bodies aren't really real. Matter doesn't exist. That's just in your heart and your imagination. And you have to transcend those things. No, he came casting out demons and feeding people. And that's how we know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Therefore, repent and believe the good news of this kingdom. Seeing the kingdom come in Jesus necessitates a response and a decision. And we call that repentance. Will we be part of this kingdom or not? In saying we're, your kingdom come, we're acknowledging that faith in Jesus 
isn't merely an idea or a doctrine or an emotion. It's a concrete reality in which we're becoming part of something else that appears out of step with the whole the way things the world are that we see around us. Now that God has come in Jesus, when the kingdom of God comes, we are to repent, i.e. change and let go of our citizenship in, our, in these old kingdoms and believe in the good news, i.e. join up and become part of a revolution. And so we can think of repentance and faith as allegiance. It's bowing the knee to Jesus and saying that He alone is Lord. All those things would have been revolutionary in the ancient world. Um, and those things lost. Like to say that we're bowing the knee to Jesus alone as Lord and that Caesar or President or Pharaoh is not is, is radical. And in some sense, Christianity is forever mixing religion and politics in that way. Um, Christian prayer, in that sense, is very political. Um, and to the credit of the rulers in Jesus' day, they had the good sense to look at Jesus and see that that was big trouble for us. I mean, what did Herod do when, when Jesus came on the scene? If you remember the Bible story. All of Jerusalem trembled with him. He was frightened. He knew that he had been in office, and he had been in office long enough that Jesus was a threat to his rule. Um, in this baby at Bethlehem, everything that he built his kingdom upon was in peril. And so Herod responded the way that all the rulers of this world respond. By, by tearing babies from their mothers in violence and killing them. That's how you know that there's a kingdom of this world. You tear babies from their mothers. Um, <laughs> Herod called out the army and he massacred all the Jewish baby boys. And that was not the only attempt that the Jewish people had as they, as they saw their power being challenged. And so in praying this prayer, your kingdom come, we are in a power struggle that can become violent because the kingdoms of this world never want to give up their power without a fight. In his earthly ministry, if you remember back, Jesus, right at the beginning of his earthly ministry, before he even preached his first sermon, Jesus is confronted by Satan and who offers him complete political control of the world all the kingdoms of this world, if Jesus would only do what? What did, what did Satan offer? If he bowed down to him, if he worshipped him, if he gave him adoration and allegiance. And Satan had the, had the actual power to give that. Satan is the ruler and prince of power of the air, and he has the kingdoms of this world in his pocket. Only if you worship... Him, he said, if you worship me, it will all be yours. But Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Jesus refused to worship Satan. 
and he refused the kingdoms of this world, how they define power. And I think that's that really at the heart of what it means to be a Christian, is that we have a radically different view of power than the world. Our power, this new kingdom that Jesus wants to establish, what he's calling the kingdom of God, is radically defined by self-sacrifice, forgiveness, reconciliation, and not by violence, not by coercion. And that is something that the story of Jesus' temptation shows that, that, that being a part of the kingdom is a question about what we worship. Being a part of the kingdom is, is about adoration and what we worship. And it's ultimately who ultimately counts in this world. What are we willing to sacrifice for? What are we willing to die for and sacrifice our children for? What are we willing... What evils are we, over, are we willing to overlook in order for our vision of freedom to continue? Our vision of what we think about meaning and purpose in life is. Um, the conservative right and the liberal left both have their ways of doing this. They both have a culture of death that overlook things in order to sustain their vision of power. And God's kingdom is completely opposed to those things. Um, God's not interested in a Sunday-only Christianity. He's not interested in having your head and not your wallet. God is not interested in people who aren't completely sold out in allegiance to Him. Um, If we think we can sequester our lives in these nice categories... That's how we actually know we've been secularized. It's in if we think our lifestyles are immune from God's call to radical discipleship. If we think that our personality traits or our wallet, our pocketbook, don't have God's radical call in saying your kingdom come, we've been secularized no matter how conservative we are. Um, we've got opinions about how in some sense, this kingdom looks in our day-to-day lives. Christians should have opinions about those things. And it begins in praying this prayer. Um, That's why when Jesus came saying these things, it was so utterly radical and different. Um, I think Eugene Peterson has this great way of saying it, is that Christianity is more political than anyone thinks, but all the different ways than anyone realizes. Like, it's in all the opposite ways than we think. Because he's, he's bringing, he's bringing in a kingdom that turns away the rich young ruler. He's bringing in a kingdom that turns everything on its head where he's a god of the oppressed that everyone wants to downtrod on. The god of the immigrant. The god of the oppressed people the God of the slaves. And that makes Herod and Caesar angry because that's how they stay in power, through violent oppression. And Jesus is saying, those are the people that I want in my kingdom. That's why C.S. Lewis said that when Jesus spoke and acted in such a way, one has to just think that he's crazy. If we don't think that Jesus is crazy at some point in our lives we might not be reading this religion right. Um, 
But the craziness of it is only crazy because our whole understanding of power in this world is totally upside down. And Jesus is flipping that on its head. And there's no middle ground in this kingdom. Jesus astounded the teaching of the scribes and the the Pharisees and all the religious people of his day. And often turned away a large audience because his sayings were hard. Um, All kingdoms have boundary markers. All of kingdoms have ways of establishing how they're in control. But God's kingdom comes and opposes the way that the world sets up boundaries. If you want to think about politics and kingdoms, boundaries are a good way of doing it. What is the vision of the good life that this community is dedicated to, to sacrifice for? That's what politics really is. It's not partisan Fox News or CNN. It's what is the vision of the good life you're willing to sacrifice for? And Jesus is setting up boundary markers that are not based on gender or class or race or economics or accent. I mean, if you think about modern nations, there's nothing more ridiculous about modern nations setting up these boundaries about what it means to be an American and then murderously going after and defending what that means. Although what it means to be an American is arbitrary. We've chosen those things, we've set up those things, and then we're willing to sacrifice everything for it. Um, But God's kingdom obliterates all the false meanings of demarcation and boundaries between human beings. Here is a kingdom that's open with all to all, and the boundary marker is baptism. That's what the Jews and the Gentiles would have heard when, when Paul said, as many of you are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all in one in Christ. Baptism is a call to come to be citizens of Israel and to become part of God's weird way of saving the world. Um, and that's why baptism is Christian initiation. So to be a Christian is to be adopted into this new nation, in this kingdom of God, and all those old labels of division that cause so much grief, what kind of music we listen to, which divides us into tribes, whether we're male or female, slave or free, rich or poor, New Jersey or California, Ohio, whatever it is. Those things are washed away and overcome. Not by saying those divisions don't mean anything, but rather by showing they've been all relativized They've been subordinated and washed by this new citizenship. So those differences, those beautiful differences are not erased, but rather all our differences are being used, all all those things are then being used for a totally different goal than what this world wants to do. So our goal, me being white, is now different than what the world's power system wants it to be. Our race divisions, our ethnic divisions, our economy and class are now being subordinated to a whole different kingdom. The poor 
in our church actually can bless us by us having a generous living for them. That's totally bizarre. Jesus said this as much when he was on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That's like coming into America and say, Blessed are the unemployed. Blessed are those who are suffering terminal illness, who are going through marital problems. What? And these are not commands, let me tell you. These are benedictions. These are blessings. These are indicatives. Jesus is holding up his hands like Pastor Rob does at the end of the sermon, and he's saying, blessed. Not, if you do these things, you'll be blessed. No, if you mourn, you're blessed. You are part of this kingdom. These are not commands. If you weep at night, if you have problems in your marriage, Jesus is saying, you're blessed, you're fortunate, you're lucky. If you're unemployed, people in this country will treat you like you have a disease. Um, they don't want to catch what you have, you know, if you're homeless. If your marriage is a failure, you're a failure. That doesn't sound very blessed. But that is exactly the people that Jesus is sitting with, tax collectors and sinners. And if you're sitting with him, you're feasting with him, you're taking the Lord's Supper with him, which is what table fellowship is, then you're part of his kingdom. That's the demarcation line. Are you baptized into his name, hallowed into his name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sprinkled on you? Why? Why does God do that? Because he loves shining through our weaknesses. He loves shining through the things of this world wants to hold us down by and oppress us through. Because his grace is sufficient and he's shining through all those failures. He's shining through your culture. He's shining through all the things that are make you different from, from me. Because we're united around the flag of Jesus. I just got to wrap up real quickly. Um, and, and, and that's why in praying this prayer, in some sense, it's really political. The powers that be in our country and in the world don't like that idea that we can get off by surviving with the church and not take from them, from their hand. They want to show us why they need us, to quote V for Vendetta. They want to constantly remind us that we need them, that we need them for life, liberty, in the pursuit of happiness. And Jesus is coming and saying, no, that kingdom is vanishing. That, that whole way of doing life is going away. And our lives are a disruption of God's kingdom in this world when we pray this. Um, and to do that, that's why God calls us every Sunday to have a party when we come to worship. We are celebrating that the pangs of death and hell are loosed and that we're starting our week. We celebrate because we have something worth celebrating. Um, the reason why people are addicted to going to raves, the reason why people are addicted to going to parties and yet wake up in the morning with a hangover and feeling so miserable is they're desperately searching for something to celebrate and a meaning in this life. But when they wake up the next morning, they're hollow and empty inside. 
it's because they don't actually because they're actually living the American dream, and that ends in sorrow and despair. But Jesus' kingdom ends with a massive feast. Um, we've even been invited with all these people that we would never normally associate with because we think that they're leprous. But actually, Jesus is doing that because He's invited us to this party that's the kingdom of God that we are now claimed out of Satan's enemy territory, out of evil and death, which Satan uses the specifics of our culture to keep us down in and to have us driven by fear. And so when we pray this, that your kingdom come, we're coming to worship on Sunday, realizing the fullness of the kingdom hasn't come yet, and, that, and that's okay, but we're, we're beginning that. We're beginning our allegiance, our joy, God has made us and given us joy in His household so that we can be living, breathing evidences that God has not abandoned the world. That God has wrestled something from the forces of evil and death and He's reclaimed us for the very purpose of what it means to be human. To praise His name. Any questions or comments before we close? That's a lot. I know there's a lot of intense stuff. But, well, let's close with a word of prayer then. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and how disruptive it is to our lives. Um, what a grace it is. It's so offensive. That's how we know it's real. That's how we know that You have intruded into our lives because it's not something that we would have made up and it's not comfortable our comfortable Christian lives in America are making us miserable. But you're disrupting our comfortability. You're disrupting our the safeness by praying this prayer. So we ask, Lord, that as we go into worship, that we would recognize what you're doing in our midst and with more gusto, pray your kingdom come and hallowed be your name. In your son's name we ask. Amen.